0: Welcome to episode 132. In this episode of Garden DC, the podcast about mid-Atlantic gardening, we talk with Annie Martin of Mountain Moss, all about gardening with moss. The plant profile is on Orange Cosmos, and we share what's going on in the garden, as well as some upcoming local gardening events in the What's New segment. We close out with Kim Roman of Square Foot Gardening for You, who shares the last word on culinary herbs this episode of Garden DC we're joined by Moss and Annie also known as Annie Martin. Welcome Annie.
1: Hey Kathy how are you doing today?
0: Great how about you?
1: It's a fantastic Carolina blue sky day nice. here in the mountains of North Carolina.
0: Well it's winter time but those skies have been really sharp blue lately. Mm-hmm. <laughs> really pretty and so our overall topic for today's podcast is all about moss and moss gardening and growing moss and sourcing moss but first on the Garden DC podcast we always like to ask were you born with chlorophyll in your veins and a green thumb?
1: (laughs) Well the good thing about mossing is that you don't have to have a green thumb nobody you just have I guess you have a green heart though in a sense um I as a young child, I appreciated mosses in particular, but no. as for growing other things, I, I don't think I could say I'm near as successful as I am in, in the aspects of creating, designing, installing moss landscapes. And I truly believe that I was born to be a moss artist in the landscape. So in that sense, I was born with it. I just didn't realize it. And I certainly didn't have a green thumb.
0: Well, I love that phrase, green heart. That's something I'm going to have to add to my vocabulary, because being born with a green heart sounds even better.
1: Well, that's the first time I've ever thought of that. It just popped right in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and that I could interpret that to mean an affinity for all things green.
1: Most definitely. And a healthy world.
0: Mm -hmm. You are originally from the Carolinas, or where did you grow up?
1: I was born and raised in Asheville, North Carolina, and although I did a couple of snits in other locations, Charlotte, North Carolina, and then Atlanta, Georgia, I came back to the mountains about 25 years ago, and I live just south of Asheville in Brevard, North Carolina, so Hmm. yes, I am still in my home place. These mountains are dear to my heart, and they offer all types of and opportunities. And I was originally driven by the economic development that I have watched occur my entire lifetime, which means lots of people moving to the mountains or building retirement homes here and big highways and Despite the fact that we are lucky to have many protected forests, I have seen much land destroyed and many mosses killed.
0: I hear about so many people who are moving down to the Carolinas for either retirement or for jobs or um, just joining family down there. So definitely a big developing area.
1: Well, it's the best place to be. You know, some of us were <laughs> lucky enough to be born here, and some other people are smart enough to move here.
0: <laughs> Since you mentioned the the moss in the city, and we'll come back to that and how that's disappearing in, in many spaces, I did want to ask if you have um, training in horticulture or how you got into horticulture to begin with.
1: Well, Kathy, I have to admit, I'm just a mosser. I just Hmm. enjoy mosses. I wanted to learn more about mosses myself, and so I started pursuing it on my own. I do not have a degree in botany nor bryology, which is the study of bryophytes, which is the scientific term for mosses. Uh, My master's degree is in media production, (laughs) and so my background prior to the last 12, 15 years was in producing live media events and providing media resources on university camp.
0: That should have given you some communication background for I know that you do speaking on mosses and lots of education and you literally wrote the book.
1: I did. I wrote the book on moss gardening and it's still a fascination to me and I Appreciate the opportunity to share the knowledge that I had up to that point. I've gained some more since then, and I never got to say everything I wanted to in the first place. So uh, in terms of learning, I consider it an ongoing process. And so I reach out to, uh, in particular, the scientists in the International Association of Bryology and the American affiliate, which is the... American lichological and Bryological society. And those are the scientists, the professors that study mosses every day. I study them in in nature every day and in landscapes every day. And every night I'm obsessed with mosses all the time, (laughs) to be quite honest. So I just was fascinated right before this conversation started to look out my picture window because I got rid of the, the beautiful stone fireplace. So now I have this 24-7 view of my moss garden and the sun was was just gently setting and the, the quartz crystal was just glowing. And then right next to it were these sporophytes on the Entodon Seductrix moss. And it was just fascinating to see them just like little heralds glowing in the late afternoon sun. And then the the green, because before it was sunny today, it was very rainy yesterday. So everything is lush and green, even in the middle of wintertime. And just a couple of weeks ago, it was only one degree. Doesn't hurt the mosses Mm. at all. They're immune to any negative effects of cold. And that's one of the best things. So when people are concerned about planting zones, since they're based on cold hardiness, they're irrelevant when it comes to planting mosses
0: mm, that's great to know and i was good to, just going to drop the name of your book for our listeners and that's the magical world of moss gardening by annie martin and that was published by timber press and you can order that through annie's website mountainmoss.com um, but getting back to that beautiful view out your window of all those gorgeous mosses in the middle of winter time that is One topic that I'm glad you brought up was the cold hardinesses of moss. And, yeah, there's mosses I hear all the way up to the Arctic Circle. And I've even heard of moss being eaten, I think, in Norway as a delicacy. Have you heard about that?
1: Well, I've actually had a a chef in New York City choose to purchase some mosses for that purpose. They're not really edible, though. Um, I mean, they don't... Possess nutritional value like you would expect from most kinds of plants. Mm. I, I, that's not one of the the flags that we can wave. We can we can <laughs> wave many, but uh, they don't taste good, and that is mm. an advantage to us as gardeners because they taste bad to other critters. That means big ones like deer, which can be Mm -hmm. a real issue even in urban areas where deer populations may be gaining. And it's really a headache, as you know, for any gardener to deal with deer passing through and having their feast as they stop by your garden. Uh, But Mm -hmm. that applies to small critters too, other kinds of pests that would normally be an issue in a garden just aren't because they The plants themselves taste bad.
0: And so moss is an ancient plant. Uh And somebody way, way back, you know, millennia, millennia, millennia ago, must have eaten moss. That must have been a delicacy for somebody back then.
1: Maybe so. It could be for somebody today if they wanted to. (laughs) <laughs> I guess <laughs> that's one thing I don't do. I I you could say I eat, sleep, and breathe moss, but I really don't eat it.
0: <laughs> no. Yeah, and I think those chefs that we've heard of who have used it experimentally, it's it's more for a conversation um starter than anything.
1: It's gimmicky. I, I really don't deal with mm mm-hmm. There are a lot of aspects of mosses in the world of horticulture and floriculture that i consider gimmicks it's where mosses are used primarily as decorative or dead elements my goal and my passion mm-hmm. is to rescue mosses from places where they will be destroyed hence my connection with the mountains and having watched this development occur and the loggers coming in and and the the big Uh, equipment to make new roads and to build houses and those are opportunities but there are also as I said other urban opportunities we can discuss but the Mm -hmm. mosses offer so many options in terms of landscaping but I stay away from some of the gimmicks. I want to keep my mosses alive. I don't rescue them for them to be dead and to be dyed green Mm -hmm. and dried so uh, there's certain terms that people use, like sheet moss. Well, in, if you've ever been in the South, that sounds a whole lot like a cuss word to me. You know? Mm. <laughs> and, and that's what I consider it. Don't even bring that word up to me. I'm, that tells me you just want not dry enough old moss to decorate with. I want to make sure that these mosses provide joy throughout all seasons and that and provide sustainable landscapes that you truly have a visual appeal throughout all seasons.
0: Yeah, and I have been seeing at craft stores, and I'm not going to name names, but, you know, the sheet mosses and rolls of moss mm-hmm. and even fake fake mosses that are kind of, looks like sprayed on styrofoam um, mm-hmm. type of materials um, that Real. are, I guess, essentially plastic.
1: Well, they're not all plastic and much of that moss that's in, dried up in the bags goes back to a back uh, to the unethical practices that exist in the moss industry in this country and around the world. And that is a, a really in-depth conversation that I don't know if you want me to jump on that soapbox right now mm-hmm. or not, but it's pretty much... Anything that you buy that's dried, green, in a plastic bag has not been harvested ethically uh, at all, period. And oftentimes, oftentimes it comes, it is not just unethical, it's illegally harvested from our protected forest. I'm very adamant uh, in my journey uh, as a moss gardener and particularly as a moss rescuer to practice ethical standards in all of my operations, and one is to be a licensed harvester of mosses by the the North Carolina Department of Agriculture, to be licensed as a a nursery to distribute mosses, and then to be a licensed North Carolina landscape contractor. So uh, it's real important to me that we don't steal from where it's protected, and I've got plenty of opportunities. Like I said, nobody needs to go steal out of the forest when there's so many bulldozers around elsewhere.
0: If you know of a nearby house that is being torn down or, you know, excavation work or landscaping work being done and you had approached them and gotten permission to um, harvest the moss from that landscape, how do you go about that?
1: Well, I tell you what, in urban areas in particular, one of the best rescue opportunities is from off of roofs because Mm -mm. there's this general opinion among the roofing industry and the insurance people that mosses will cause damage to the roof. Well, I would venture to say that that's an inaccurate assessment in most cases unless the shingles are made out of cedar. If they're asphalt Mm -hmm. shingles, Mosses actually protect the roof. But since the society has these norms and they're against the moss, then I, if I can't convince the people it's not going to hurt the roof, then I just ask permission to climb up and retrieve the mosses before the shingles are torn off or cleaned or whatever they're planning on doing with them. Uh, I do limit myself because I'm a little bit of a chicken, and I only do... A roof that's got a 412 pitch is the most. I can't do real steep pitches. Oh, so, yeah. But I've been known to get up there, and there's some great sun tolerant mosses that live and heat tolerant as well, as you can imagine, that live on shingles. Now, when I am retrieving them, when I mentioned that I would disagree with the popular opinion that mosses are damaging, because when I remove Colonies of mosses from the shingles, they're almost pristinely new underneath the moss colony. And the other shingles are degraded and falling apart. Mosses just have rhizoids too. The only purpose is is to connect them to something they're growing to. So, And they're real tiny. So they don't weave underneath the, the shingle or cause any damage. If the roof is leaking and mosses are living there. It's not caused by the mosses. There was some other structural issue and degradation that was occurring with the roof its substrate itself. But like I said, some people don't want to listen to that opinion. So if they don't want to listen, I'll just be happy to remove those mosses. (laughs) And then I'll take them and use them in an installation or um, offer them to other DIY moss gardeners around the country.
0: And when you remove it from a roof, do you have to keep it damp or wet before you bring it back or apply it to a new area?
1: It depends on the species. It and what the microclimate conditions and the most recent weather has been. There are times like with entodon where it's an even Hedwigia which are two common roof moss species where it's actually easier to remove it when it's ever so slightly dry versus wet. It may fall apart when it's wet. Then ceratodon, which is an upright grower, those are two sideways growers. And ceratodon and bryum uh, often are on asphalt roofs as well. They're little upright growers. By the way, they're the ones that live in the cracks of the city. I bet you if you walk down the streets of D.C., you'd be able to see either one of those species within just a few feet of stepping out of the Mm -hmm. building. They're amazing. And when you mentioned that mosses, some of them can live um, in other parts of the world, That's not just a generalized statement. That can be specific to certain species. And Ceratodon can be found in the the sidewalks of any major city in the world. You could go to Paris. You could go to Kyoto. You could travel on an expedition to Antarctica and even find Ceratodon. So it's amazing to me that they live on In urban areas, on roofs where the the heat can be quite intense in the summer, in many places, and of course they've got this drainage that's occurring on most roofs, and they're they're hardy little plants. It's amazing, Mm -hmm. and even on the largest green roof in the country is at uh, one of the major uh, automobile manufacturing plants. And they have had mosses self-introduce into their seed and plantings that they had. Well, to me, let's don't just consider mosses an afterthought. Let's look at the benefits of mosses in the landscape and choose them intentionally as horticultural uh, beneficial plants. And they mm. they do benefit us in many other ways that we hadn't even discussed about the benefits.
0: Oh, yeah. We need to dive into that. But I do want to circle back to what you said about the rooftop, urban rooftops in particular. That is one of the harshest, if not the harshest conditions for any plant that I can imagine. Because you're not only exposed, as you said, to the intense sun and drainage, but also The winds, you know, the winds up several stories are pretty intense.
1: And those little tiny rhizoids have the ability to hold tight and not blow away and not wash away and hold up to, to the impact of heavy snow and of hail. They can live through so many harsh weather events without a doubt. But, but you can easily remove them by hand, and that's the way I do it. That's why I can actually remove mosses from a roof that somebody wants to keep. It doesn't have to be one that's slated for destruction. Um,
2: mm-hmm.
1: And I I will caution. Number one, my daddy taught me this a long time ago, and that is among the many good lessons it was to always have a spotter if you ever climb up on a roof. So always do it in tandem. Never climb up on a roof by yourself. Second thing, of course, you should ask for permission. And third, bring the folks some brownies and write them a thank you note.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, always room for brownies and and always room for good manners. And I'm going to say I am a chicken when it comes to heights as well. So, Uh, I would have three spotters, if not just one.
1: (laughs) Oh, and I I have, I go up on the ladder and they pass up these toboggan sleds and, Mm -hmm. um, and then I load them in the sleds and I put layers and I can't put too many layers because they get too heavy to pass down. But that's, I actually can gather a lot. I mean, I usually only do a roof if it has a minimum of 50 square feet. Hmm.
0: That sounds so fascinating. And so let's turn to all the benefits of moss.
1: Oh, it's a long list.
0: We talked a little bit about the toughness of moss and the ubiquity of moss, um, but what are some of those other great benefits?
1: Well, let's go back to that ancient aspect first, because Mm -hmm. I want to mention before we get into just the logistics of moss gardening, the benefits to your spirit. As a gardener, you know that part of the reason we create these landscapes is to make our hearts smile and and the clients. But I truly believe that mosses with their ancient voices have something to share with our spirits. They've literally watched the dinosaurs come and go. They have lived through all cataclysmic disasters. Uh, They can be the first to introduce after a a major fire or at a toxic site. Mosses will be survivors. They're pioneers, but they're survivors. So listening to the lessons. You know how they're talking about how the trees are talking to the mushrooms? Well, Mm -hmm. the scientists forgot who started the conversation. And it was the mosses way, way, way back. And they never left. And they're real social. They like to chitty chat. So, And they're still talking to those mushrooms in those trees. <laughs> I don't know how they got forgotten in that equation because it's definitely not uh, a binary situation. We've got those mosses in with the first party, not the last party. And they certainly shouldn't be left out. So listen to the mosses and have the opportunity not only for reflection as we might expect in a serene Japanese style garden, similar to the the grand temples in Japan, but also use it as a place for celebration. Tonight, it's a full moon. And so I imagine I'll be out there in my moss garden. So that's the first thing. That's one benefit. Okay. And I don't ever want people to forget that that's the most important one is to, to fill your heart with joy. Mm -hmm. Second, that we get into environmental benefits. Okay. Um, mosses who we let's wave the biggest flag of all mosses, sphagnum mosses as a genus. And there are about two, 200 plus species within that genus. Uh, Sphagnum peatlands cover 2 to 3% of the world's land mass. Now, that in and of itself is an incredible fact, because if you think about acers or maple trees, that's like saying 3% of the world is just maple trees. Well, it's just sphagnum mosses. That's not counting all of the other 10,000 plus mosses, 8,000 plus liverworts, and then 100 hornworts that all comprise the bryophyta category so they i'm about to lose my train of thought there you better get me back on track
0: so you were saying that the second benefit that it was environment oh, yeah
1: cleaning the air that's where i'm going we're gonna clean the air <laughs> so they cover all this land mass but what's most amazing is that these are carbon sinks and they are Uh, In terms of carbon sequestration, if you combine all of the tropical rainforests, and I imagine there are a few listeners out there to this podcast that would be tree huggers and value the fact that we want to protect our forests so that they can clean the air, but it takes twice as many of all the trees put together to equal the sequestration that occurs with just within the sphagnum peatlands. That's a pretty big fact. It used mm-hmm. to just be equal to, but most recently, a German scientist who is, continues to study sphagnums, they've been doing it for years, and they've been using it in landscapes and on green roofs, um, has upped it to be in twice as much.
0: And is that because of tree loss or because of moss increase?
1: I think it's because of an uh, an increase of knowledge of the role of mosses in Ah. the whole aspect of worldwide biodiversity and balance
0: Mm -hmm. makes sense
1: there could obviously be some other variables affecting the decline in one area but i don't necessarily think it's an increase in the mosses because unfortunately many of the peatlands are being destroyed um Mm. mosses are destroyed every day here just as i mentioned in my home region where there's Construction occurring, but it it can be on a much larger scale in terms of what has occurred worldwide uh, with mosses in that respect. But they do clean the air. Then some people take that to exaggerate it that they're going to build these little 10 by 10 foot walls and put them in a city and think they're going to clean all the, the, the grime and the, the, I mean, just all of the traffic. And it's just not, con- I mean, think about it, just from a mathematical, basic math mm-hmm. understanding, a 100 square foot wall is not going to clean that much air.
0: Mm-hmm. It
1: can't. It's not a magnet out of a comic magazine where it sucks everything into that one little location. But with that said, the benefits continue in that, by reducing the need to mow grass, you ha- because in using mosses instead as a lawn, then you have reduced air pollution that's being generated as well. So let's look at that. Then in terms of groundwater contamination, if you don't need to use chemical fertilizers, which there's no benefit to mosses in most cases, or at least there's not any documented facts. At this point, there's suppositions, but nothing that can be really proven by species, and you certainly cannot make generalizations to the entire ten thousand plus moss species. Uh, and that is one thing. Most people, and I did this too, Kathy, when I started out, all I knew was the word moss, and mm-hmm. I just categorized all of them together but they are really very fascinating, and there's so many different species, and as I alluded to early, some grow sideways and some grow upright. Okay, another benefit, well, the fact that you can enjoy them in the wintertime. We've already mentioned that as well. Now, in terms of erosion control, mosses can hold to the tiniest of surfaces and, and crevices, so they can be utilized for stormwater runoff issues because as mosses, and this is going to get to a botanical characteristic of mosses that impacts how we garden and the, how it benefits us. But mosses, I've mentioned, don't have roots. They have rhizoids. They're the purpose just to hold them. Anyhow, their leaves... Typically, are only one cell layer thick, but most importantly, the leaves do not have a cuticle. Think about a rhododendron leaf, hmm. or holly, or even English ivy. You know how that shiny it is? It has a waxy substance on top.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: That is so that the rainwater, or you know, supplemental watering from an irrigation system or whatever, falls to the ground and goes to the roots. Mosses are non lignin or non vascular, depends on which term you really want to get specific and use. But that means that if we go way back to our earliest days of learning about how plants operated, they had roots to suck in nutrients and it went up to the xylem and the phloem. Mosses don't eat through roots, the rhizoids hold it to the surface, they eat through their leaves. And that, so when because that cuticle's not on it, and because it's only one cell layer thick, they can hydrate very quickly. Hence, now if they're absorbing water through every leaf as it runs down a hillside, then you can imagine and visualize that the rainwater and that culmination and that flooding area starts to reduce as it's passing through this so that it slows down and can enter the groundwater table at a more appropriate rate. That's another benefit. Hmm. And then for steep areas, there are certain upright species that I highly recommend, but sideways growers, once they're attached to a hillside, they can hold soil in place as well
0: i'm picturing this giant thin sponge (laughs) across the landscape but it also would act as a filter for even chemicals or pollutants as well right
1: Mm -hmm. that's why when people ask about what kind of waters people mention about water oftentimes and the quality of the water because i do promote the advantages of supplemental watering to keep the mosses lush All moths are going to look better when they're wet, number one. Mm -hmm. They're going to grow better. And they have sex better when they have water, too. So you know, the advantages of supplemental watering do not relate specifically to any any supposition that they need to have pristine, clean water. You certainly don't have to use any distilled water. I cannot imagine anybody trying to carry gallons of distilled water out <laughs> to tend to your yeah. garden i mean if you can drink your water the mosses can drink it too now if you have heavy salts where you are perhaps that could impact it maybe and then if you have well water sometimes well water actually can have more iron in it you could have some reaction to it but mosses can literally be supplemented with moisture through gray water and they can be at toxic sites
0: and gray water meaning if it has soapy substances in it that's fine it just filters right through
1: well it should mm-hmm. and people have been successful with it I cannot personally attest to that fact myself
0: maybe something to experiment with maybe a little patch um, using some of the old dishwater and just checking on that every once in a while
1: Well, in general, you wouldn't think that soapy water would be good for it. But then again, there have been some people, Kathy, that are nervy enough to ask this moss lady how to get rid of moss. Well, now, you should not be asking me that question in the first place. (laughs) But at one point, I would have said that, yes, you could kill it with Clorox. But I do for a fact know that there was a situation here at a campground and they had to deal with uh, an area that got a lot of Clorox. And do you know that the William Moss lived through it? We were just all delighted. It's (laughs) like, how is that even possible? (laughs) Now, I wouldn't recommend that you punish your mosses. Now, I've even thought about Not just selling mosses, but having them up for adoption (laughs) so that people would really take good care of them. (laughs) I care about all... I mean, I'm rescuing them myself, personally. I don't want them to die. Mm -hmm. I want them to all be happy campers.
0: Well, speaking of adoption and naming, I was looking at some of the varieties of moss available on your site, and the Hedwigii ciliata, that...
1: Caught my eye. Okay, well, it has an interesting backstory. That's Hedwigia ciliata, and the name comes from Johann Hedwig. He was the counterpart of Linnaeus over in Europe. And he lived in Transylvania. Well, guess where I live? I live in Transylvania too. Transylvania County, North Carolina. (laughs) (laughs) He was in the one over in Romania. Anyhow, like Linnaeus, he was a good artist. And they were scientists. And they were at the advent of the microscope. And it was Hedwig who first came up with the nomenclature similar to Linnaeus's four bryophytes. Linnaeus tried and he got a few right but he got a couple of them kind of wrong once they were really studied properly. So Hedwig is the name of where Hedwigia comes from and he was the scientist. He also was able to I mentioned something. I kind of whispered it about mosses having sex. He's the first person to have identified that individual moss plants, which for most people, when you're looking at a moss colony, when you see the leaves, you're probably thinking that that's just, you're looking at whole plants that you may think are leaves. Hmm. But when you look at them up close, you can see these little teeny tiny leaves on them. You know, every, so every colony of mosses, a, a patch that's maybe, five inches by five inches could have not just hundreds but thousands of plants growing in that one little space depending on the species and every one individual plant has male and female parts and the sperm swims from the antheridium over to the archegomium and fertilizes the egg that's why water's advantageous you know there's got to be somewhere to swim around in get over there And then, instead of making a baby plant, they go into a second stage of reproduction. And that is where the plant generates a sporophyte. The sporophyte would be considered the equivalent of a flower. And inside the spore capsule, spores develop and mature, and then they are dispersed. And when they are, they fly out like seeds. I mean, they're microscopic in size, so they can attach to this little tiny crevice in a wall, even. So that's how mosses appear in walls and on vertical locations.
0: Let's pause there for a word from one of our advertisers, and then we'll return with some tips from Moss and Annie on how to maintain moss in your garden and how to get it established.
3: This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg.
0: People generally think of them just being used as a carpet in an Asian garden, but there are so many other ways we can use them, right?
1: Oh, most definitely. And while they are a hallmark of Japanese-style gardens, uh, there are ways that you can incorporate them with natives, with perennials, and even with annuals. And with that concept in mind, you have the opportunity to actually plant features, patios, paths, um, pocket gardens, and of course, big giant moss lawns that would equate to a grass lawn.
0: All of that sounds beautiful. And when you say a big giant moss lawn, Moss is notorious for not growing that fast. There's all those moss sayings about slow as moss, right? Um, so, how would we go about going from, um, you know, a regular turf grass lawn or some some other type of landscape to converting to a moss lawn?
1: Well, first of all, that comment about being slow growing is indeed true in comparison with other species. And if you are expecting sideways expansion or horizontal growth, then you have to use a sideways growing species. So that's one of the criteria in choosing the appropriate moss for your project. The other thing is that in terms of transitioning, if you have existing mosses, there are maintenance ways that you can encourage better growth and expansion through dislodging fragments of the moss plants into vacant areas, or you can intentionally plant as well. But the biggest point about the moss lawn that I think I should send out as a red flag is a lesson that I learned from my grandmother years ago on Friday nights when we went to the Art Deco's s and cafeteria in downtown Asheville, my hometown, and she always say, now don't let your eyes get too big for your stomach. Don't let your mall goals be too large for your own budget parameters or what you are up to taking care of in terms mm. of maintenance. So with that said, I will encourage people to start small. Choose a feature-type uh, application. Plant mosses in a courtyard. Create visual destinations that you can enjoy from the inside looking out, as well as when you want to enjoy being in your garden.
0: And so for choosing the type of mosses in different settings, do you have any advice for that?
1: Well, the first parameter that should be adhered to is choosing the appropriate moss species for the sun exposure. You don't want to use a shade species in direct sun because it will not thrive and it could desiccate or even die. You want to choose mosses that like to be in the shade, should be planted there, but then they're versatile species, as you mentioned just earlier, that can live in the shade or impartial sun, and then there are other species that can handle direct sun exposures. Beyond, and oh, I do need to make a note, when you're assessing the sun exposure, you need to think about it at all seasons of the year, and at different times of the day, as the sun moves through the sky during the seasons, or even as it passes from morning into afternoon, there may be sunspots, even in an area that has trees with a leaf canopy. But the leaves don't stay on the trees but about six months. And you've got another six months usually of leafless, barren trees. And that is when you are having direct sun. Course, in the wind, the sun's lower in the sky, you take that into consideration. But the sun exposure is the most critical factor. The second one would be to choose species that like that particular microclimate. If it's a soggy area where uh, stormwater remediation is desired, you want to choose species that will enjoy having. Wetter conditions on a co- more consistent basis, so I would recommend Alacomium, or even a sphagnum, sphagnum species, perhaps. Climacium is ideal for that type of application, but you can. Then beyond what the substrate is, some of them really like to live on rocks and you might want to start adorning your boulders or create a skirt around a boulder or even around a tree. And when I call a skirt, that means putting a hole like one to two feet in a circle around the entire tree or boulder. Now, that's two primary factors, the microclimate and then the sun exposure. And then you can start choosing based on the the type of texture and the creative artistic applications of mosses because that you have mound species that offer a variety of textures and shades of green as well as sideways growing mosses which could be referred to as carpets. So the mounds grow upright and the carpets grow horizontally but you can combine Both of them in your garden design. Just only expect the sideways grower to produce the sideways results you might expect. Now, is there anything else that might be of concern? If you have a specific functional need that the mosses are going to help address in terms of stormwater mitigation or erosion control, then you would choose ones that would be good for that. I mentioned some that would be good in soggy areas, but if you have a hillside, polytricum, which is an upright grower, is ideal.
0: So when you're adding moss to your landscape, is there a best time of year to do that?
1: Well, mosses are so versatile and they are hardy to cold temperatures. So actually they thrive in the winter and it's an ideal time to plant them. In On the coldest of days, even if the ground is frozen, you just have to thaw your mosses out. Of course, you can plant in traditional seasons of spring and summer and even fall. You just have to consider uh, the conditions and in the summer, it's going to be hotter. You want to make sure you're definitely providing that supplemental watering. So anytime is a good time to plant mosses. Uh, There are some different methods that you can use, and I have encouraged the listeners to start small and to definitely give themselves a present by creating a focal feature that they can enjoy. And that's by planting all of the mosses solid together. So if you're using upright colonies, you literally just plop them down next to each other, nestle them up together. With sideways growers, such as Hypnum or Thuidium or Hyalocomium, Browandersonia, you want to interleaf the edges of the colonies so that they are connected. And then afterwards, you um, do want to walk on them, water and walk on them. That's part of my three W's, water, walk, and weed, which we'll get to in just a minute but definitely you want to water it in good and then walk on it. There are other intermediary methods. If you don't have the budget to plant solid from the get-go, you might choose to use what I refer to as the cookie sheet method, and that's where you use hand-sized colonies or whatever size you wish and space them apart from each other like you would on a cookie sheet. And then Those, if you're using sideways growers, mind you, then they will start to connect and grow towards each other. You can speed that process up by adding in fragments of moss plants in between the colonies. And if you're wondering how long would it take to grow in if you started using that method, I can testify that one of my STAR students has been able to successfully introduce Hypnum and Thuidium colonies, which are pleurocarps, sideways growers, and using what he referred to as pancakes, within one year it was solid. Now, mind you, it was in an ideal environmental location. He did maintain the mosses and kept them clean and free of debris, and he made repairs to any critter damage. But with that said, you And you mentioned something about how slow they might be to grow in. And indeed, a year is a long time, particularly if you're comparing it to other types of plants or ground covers. And then the final method is just to use fragments of the plants, or what I refer to as frags, because every portion of the plant is alive. And so you just distribute these fragments that you tear apart with your hands or that you cut with scissors you don't have to use a blender because I anticipate that question coming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And you knew I'd have to ask about the (laughs) buttermilk.
1: Yeah, you want to go ahead? All right. Well, mosses, the botanical fact is that they do have characteristics where they can grow from vegetative reproductive processes. And so they can grow from plant fragments. If you put mosses in a blender, number one, you might want to choose the appropriate species for the target location. As I've mentioned, it's important to choose the species that will thrive in the sun exposure where you intend to plant it. All right, that's the first consideration. So haphazard use of any moss is not a good idea. Second thing, who wants to ruin their good blender? At least go to the thrift store and buy yourself a cheap one. Third. Who wants to go spend money on buttermilk or beer or yogurt <laughs> or anything else when the reality is that all you need to do is distribute the fragments? Now, once you mix mix it all up in your blender and you spread it around, now, Kathy, this is just a logistical um, issue from my point of view. How many blenders would it take to cover a very large area? <laughs> I mean, and you just it's just an (laughs) unnecessary need. Now, it is the most frequently asked question at every lecture, every interview, every time I meet someone, they want to ask me about it. Regretfully, most of them are kind of shy and embarrassed because they have not had success. Don't feel bad about it because in all likelihood that buttermilk's going to wash away and it's not going to stick like it needs to. Uh, the moss fragments with, with the tiny rhizoids will connect to the surface or the substrate that you intend. If you want it to grow on a little statue, your best bet is to p- place the statue or with sideways growers adjacent and they'll start creeping up onto that little bunny if you want it to or onto saint francis whoever you want moss to be adorned and enhanced with mosses and if you want to you can stick a little hat on it and just hold it on with a rock little pebble or something till the rhizoids actually attach so there are ways to encourage moss growth based on the concept of moss fragmentation and the ability to grow in that method. But you don't need to waste the blender unless you just want to. I mean, you could do the experiment, but don't be disappointed if you're not successful. You can I you can use methods that are actually tried and true. And that's part of what I do in my moss mission is to make sure that people are aware of what is myth and what is fact, and what methods actually worked. Everything I recommend hadn't just been theorized. It's not just an idea of what might work. It's what truly works, and it can exist for years to come. I have an area that in my yard that's my favorite feature. It's a retreat, and 10 years ago, it was an asphalt driveway. And to be quite honest, the asphalt is still underneath it, and it is absolutely gorgeous. The mosses have just thrived. So you have lots of opportunities to plant mosses and to enjoy them and different planting methods to use. But most of all, make sure you plant something that's solid and beautiful that gives you that immediate gratification.
0: That is awesome, Annie. And I love that story about your asphalt driveway. Who needs that? We need more moss, right?
1: Exactly.
0: Let's talk about maintenance. You referred to the three w's, um weeding, watering, and walking. So let's take those one at a time. Let's start with that weeding.
1: Well, weeding is the last step uh, in the sense of the three w's. And unfortunately, there are lots of weeds that will grow in mosses. The purpose of mosses in nature's life cycle in the forest is to nurture seedlings. <laughs> and that's that's why we face the issue of weeds in our garden landscapes. Some people say they don't ever get a weed. And I, I just can't imagine it. I've been doing this now professionally and personally for Over 10 years, and I still have to deal with weeds. So don't be disappointed if you get a weed. You just have to have the zen experience of sitting there and enjoying that meticulous weeding process, or you may have to resort to a chemical treatment that would kill the weeds and obnoxious grasses, but not harm the mosses. And there are several different chemicals that can be used in that manner. Moss, usually poisons like that are systemic. And mosses do not have an internal system um, to transmit those poisons. Anyhow, they don't die from it. I do say follow the directions. Make sure that you do it above 60 degrees. And... Not immediately before a rainstorm. You also don't want to apply any chemical application for killing weeds if it has been a very stressful situation. If there's drought or high heat index that has been consistent for days. You want to give it a little bit of a drink, but not be solid wet when you apply the herbicide.
0: And that resistance to chemicals, that makes it also thrive under walnut trees.
1: Yes. It's amazing where mosses will grow. <laughs> they just don't care about the nutrients in the soil because they don't have that xylem and phloem and the need to pull nutrients through the roots. The rhizoids, instead of roots, just hold them to a substrate. Uh, the mosses actually eat through their leaves. And that's how they drink too. They will dry out quickly because the moss leaves typically are only one cell layer thick. And that brings us to the water part. So how's that sound? Let's segue there. Mm -hmm. I, I firmly believe that supplemental watering is the key to success with mosses mother nature can be kind to us sometimes she's very generous and gives us too much rain sometimes she doesn't bless us with rain for days or weeks or sometimes even months if that said your mosses are going to suffer if you do not provide supplemental watering and if you want them to look really good then providing brief sessions several times a day and when I say brief, I mean no longer than three minutes probably will work. And keep your mosses healthy and happy. So that's the second W. And then the other W is walk. And the walking, mosses are hardy to foot traffic. Don't worry about that. Now, if you want to have daily tours in your garden, there may be some wear and tear. Um, and I would encourage you to just use fragments along a gravel path to soften the harshness of the hardscape itself with a little bit of green pleasures of mosses. But you do want to walk on the mosses, sit on them. If it's on a steep hill, if you're a landscaper, you can use a tamper. And I've been known to, and this sounds mean Kathy, but I've used a hammer when I'm planting in the cracks between stones sometimes. And at that point I use, I have, I oversaturate the moss colonies and then hammer them into place so that those little rhizoids and whatever soils there will just go into the grooves of the existing soil or the leveling agent, such as uh, granite dust or even concrete.
0: I love picturing you hammering away in the garden, (laughs) and
1: You should have heard me singing. I, I. I was singing, if I had hammer, I'd hammer in the morning. I'd hammer my mosses all over this world. <laughs> and I mean, I was going to town that particular day when I was singing that song and hammering away at the Ceratodon and the Entadon. Uh, there were winds that were steady at 40 miles an hour with gusts up to 60 miles an hour. And I could hear them coming from across from the other ridge across the valley to the mountain that I was on. I mean, it was roaring, and it was freezing cold. It was so bitter cold. And the mosses didn't mind, but I certainly minded how cold it was that day. And those mosses actually were p- planted in 2012. Ten years later, well, we're moving on. Ten and a half years later, they're looking mighty fine still.
0: Any maintenance or other points we haven't covered yet?
1: The most important maintenance beyond the water, the supplemental watering would be to keep uh, the debris off of the mosses. And right before you plant, you want to clean the debris off of the ground too and slightly score it. You don't need to enrich the soil for hardly any moss species except for Climacium, And that is the only one where I recommend that you in, add some humus from the... the forest or even mushroom compost or something of that nature that's a richer type soil. All the rest of them don't care, literally. Now, you may have to do some other maintenance besides water walking and weeding. You may have to face the issue of critter damage. This could be from uh, desired birds, And other little nighttime critters in terms of being a friendly habitat. And of course, lots of critters do live in the mosses that are not harmful. But there can be visitors that come and dig around and root for grubs and tear your mosses up. If that's the case, luckily, the disturbed mosses can easily be put back in place. You don't want to leave them for too long. Um laying, you know, in disarray, but they're not going to die overnight by any means. In fact, the ones that are dislodged, that are turned upside down, will just start growing from the other side. Yes, ma'am, mosses are hardy, and they are just amazing plants, no matter how you look at them. So the other maintenance that you would need to do in terms of leaf uh, removal typically is raking but I only recommend raking if you are trying to expand an existing area and wanting to dislodge fragments into the vacant places where you want more mosses to grow. Otherwise, I recommend that you blow uh, and that you use a variable speed blower, but most importantly, do not use long, steady hard blows. Uh, You want to be erratic in your movements. You want to do a figure eight or up and down motions. And sometimes it's even better to blow the leaves when they're wet. And wet mosses tend not to blow away. If they do blow away, put them back in place or put them in your frag bag and use them later. So that's one thing. Uh, In terms of Critter deterrence, let's talk about that for just a second. You can, if you have repeated visits by critters that are tearing up the mosses, uh, you might want to use a wildlife netting as a temporary measure. Sometimes it has to be used as a permanent measure in places where people can't attend to their mosses on a regular basis. Uh, You can also use sonic blasters to scare away critters or even use um, lights. Motion sensor lights can be used. Some people have tried using various um, hot red pepper, other types of deterrents that would taste bad uh, perhaps. Uh, You can use window screens and i had one client that was so determined to keep the flock of crows away from her moss lawn that she had it in all types of metallic spinning objects uh, such as pinwheels
0: <laughs> i think that is some incredible advice Annie and thank you so much for sharing your moss wisdom and your moss passion and how can our listeners get in touch with you they
1: can visit my website mountainmoss.com I provide a lot of information on the site I also sell mosses for DIY projects and for professional landscapers around the country I offer lectures and uh Zoom meetings, whether they're in person or through the electronic method. I travel around the country and I do site consultations and phone consultations as well. So there are lots of ways that I offer my professional expertise to the public. And I wrote a book, The Magical World of Moss Gardening. And I truly hope that all of these listeners will embrace mosses as an intentional horticultural choice and experience the joy to their spirit that I have along my moss gardening journey. Thanks, Kathy. I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity to share my expertise and my passion, and I hope others join in the moss journey.
0: Thank you, Annie. profile Orange Cosmos. Orange Cosmos, Cosmos sulfurious is a prolific annual flower in the mid-Atlantic area that reseeds liberally. So, once you have this plant, you will have it return each year in abundance. To start off, sprinkle or direct sow a pack of seeds in mid-spring. The bright light seed mix is popular and widely available. The seeds are easy to collect so it is likely that you can get some free from fellow gardeners or at a local plant swap. If you do not want it to reseed in your garden, deadhead and collect the spent blooms regularly. This cosmos has ferny foliage and is covered with orange-yellow-gold flowers from midsummer to frost. It is a wonderful cut flower, though it only lasts a few days in a vase. It is a pollinator magnet, beloved by bees and butterflies. Finches enjoy eating the seed heads. It's native to the desert areas of the Americas, so that gives you a big clue as to its growing preferences. Sulphur cosmos, also known as Klondike cosmos, grows best in full sun, but tolerates poor clay soil, and it thrives in heat and humidity. I never give mine any water unless we have a prolonged period of drought and excessive heat. Orange Cosmos is a bright spot in my garden, and one of those old-fashioned, reliable plants that's the backbone of any cottage garden. Orange Cosmos, you can grow that. What's new in the garden this week? Well, we're back from our holiday break and starting off season four on the Garden DC Podcast. Welcome back, everyone. And over at the community garden plot, I visited after the deep freeze we had at the end of December to find that my broccoli and the kale had turned to mush, unfortunately. But things are looking great in the home garden, and I actually have some winter blooming plants, from the winter jasmine to the Oregon grape Mahonia in bloom and some heathers and a couple other scattered things so that's cheering me up these days. In the local gardening world some events we want to call your attention to include the Washington Gardener Garden Photo Contest. Our entries are open now and they end on January 21st. You can find out more about how to enter at WashingtonGardener.blogspot.com, and we also have our upcoming seed exchanges on Saturday, January twenty eighth, twenty twenty three, at Brookside Gardens from twelve thirty to four p.m. on National Seed Swap Day. We are holding one of our seed exchanges, and you can register for that at WG Seed X. That's ex twenty twenty three. Brownpapertickets.com. And our second seed exchange is the following Saturday, February 4th, 2023 from 1230 to four again, but this time at Greenspring Gardens in Alexandria, Virginia. Again, same registration link, wgseedex tickets.com. And to select the February 4th date, just toggle down to that. And you can also find out many more details and much more information about it at our website, washingtongardener.blogspot.com. Then don't forget about our upcoming Garden Book Club meeting, which is free and open to all. And that's on Thursday, February 9th, held at 6.30 p.m. Eastern time via Zoom. And we are, are discussing The Earth in Her Hands, 75 Extraordinary Women Working in the World of Plants by Jennifer Jewell. So you'll want to get your copy of that and then join us for that discussion online. And you can register at the Zoom link again at our website, washingtongardener.blogspot.com. And you can also find those details about the seed exchange, the photo contest and the upcoming uh, garden book club in our December and January issues of Washington Gardener magazine. Other local upcoming events that you might want to attend this one is virtual and it is Sunday, January 15th. And this is hosted by the Potomac Rose Society. And the title is Spotted Lanternfly Educate, Identify, Eliminate. And that is free and open to all. You just have to register for that at potomacrose.org and go to the event tab. So an in-person event that is coming up is Winter Tree ID Walk at the University of Maryland campus in College Park. And that's at the Campus Arboretum, which is, of course, part of the greater campus. And that's taking place on Friday, January 20th at noon. Um, You don't need to be a Master Gardener to attend this event, but it is hosted by the Master Gardeners. And you can find out more information and had register at go.umd.edu slash tree id and then finally the silver spring garden club is meeting at brookside gardens in person on monday january 23rd at 7 30 p.m the talk that evening is on learn to grow and use a dozen culinary herbs and the speaker is Peggy Riccio and this meeting is open and free to all to attend Uh, just come to Brookside Gardens Visitor Center Education Building and join the club in the art in the auditorium there happy gardening
3: Get low maintenance alternatives to lawns with ground cover revolution by Kathy Jens, Reducing the lawn is among the biggest trends in homeownership, with an endless stream of homeowners looking for an eco-friendly alternative to a traditional turf grass lawn. In the last few years alone, over 23 million American adults converted part of the lawn to a natural landscape, and now they're looking to do even more. The biggest challenge to adopting this new ideal of the perfect lawn, knowing how and when to replace your turf, and which plants are the best ones for the job. Ground Cover Revolution is here with all the answers you need, and some you didn't even know you needed included our 40 in-depth profiles of plants and an incredibly useful chart giving you all the specifics on each of those choices for quick reference and to make your ground cover selection process even easier. Whether you want to replace the entire lawn or just reduce the amount of land dedicated to turf, Ground Cover Revolution will help you usher in a new and improved idea of what a beautiful lawn should be. Available February 7th, 2023 and you can pre-order it now at amazon.com or bookshop.org. area you'll crave spending time in. Whether you're growing edible plants or beautiful flowers, the 101 amazing growing ideas found in the urban garden will turn your tiny urban yard into a treasure trove of green you'll be proud to share with family and friends. Buy your copy today at your local retail bookseller or order it online now at amazon.com or bookshop.org.
2: This is The Last Word on Culinary Herbs by Kim Roman of Square Foot Gardening for You. That's the number four and the letter U and author of How to Garden Indoors and Grow Your Own Food Year-Round. I've taught small space veggie and culinary herb gardening since 2010. For years, I wanted to add a medicinal herb garden, but my yard was too small. In fall of 2021, I moved from one-fifth of an acre in the suburb south of Baltimore to just under one and a quarter acres in the more rural area of Northeast Maryland. However, when spring arrived and the trees got their leaves back, I found most of the property is in deep shade and the large sunny spot in the front yard is over the septic field. So no in-ground garden for me. Then I ran across a 2019 article on PubMed titled, Health Benefits of Culinary Herbs and Spices by T. Allen Jiang. I was so excited. The abstract reads, Spices not only enhance the flavor, aroma, and color of food and beverages, but they can also protect from acute and chronic diseases. More Americans are considering the use of spices and herbs for medicinal and therapeutic use especially for various chronic conditions. There is now ample evidence that spices and herbs possess antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, anti turmerogenic, anti-carcinogenic, and glucose and cholesterol-lowering activities, as well as properties that affect cognition and mood. Here are just a few examples of culinary herbs and spices for wellness. The cardiovascular system, you know, your heart and blood vessels, well, they can be supported by anise hyssop, basil, ginger, garlic, thyme, and turmeric. The nervous system, and that would be your brain, spinal cord, and nerves, gets a boost from basil, chamomile, holy basil, lemon balm, and sage. There's even exciting buzz about saffron helping prevent Alzheimer's. Of course, more study is needed. Supportive herbs for the skeletal system include chamomile, dandelion, lemongrass, moringa, parsley, and thyme. Is it any wonder I'm now working on an untitled book right now on culinary herbs and spices and how they help with overall wellness? Let's do out in spring 2024. Culinary herbs are usually very easy to grow and generally produce for a good amount of time during the season. Many are perennial and will come back for several years. So spice up your wellness routine by adding culinary herbs to your garden. Find me online at hashtag gardening for you or hashtag your indoor food garden.
0: You can find Washington Gardener online at washingtongardener.com, on Twitter at WDC Gardner, on Instagram at WDC Gardener, and on Facebook.com at Washington Gardener Magazine.